Hello, I'm Katie Darrow. Welcome to Expect Better, a new podcast series from Coots, which looks at the thrills and spills of life through a wealth lens. And as we reach our final episode in the series, we're aptly looking into the future and turning the spotlight today onto the next generation of wealth owners, commonly referred to as next gen. We're going to be probing what makes them tick, what makes them different, what they need to focus on above all else. And to help us do that, let me introduce you to today's guests. Jeff Marsh, the managing director of consultancy firm Dansam Limited. He's got more than 15 years experience delivering training to the next generation of high net worth individuals and ultra high net worth individuals. I'm also joined by Stuart May, who's associate director at Coots. Now then, those of you familiar with this series will know that we always start the episode with the same question to help us sort of set the scene for what's ahead. So in 10 words or less... First of all, to you, Jeff, what does wealth mean to you? From my experience, it's opportunity and choice, but with it, responsibility, duty and obligation. Fair enough. And Stuart, how about you? I would say for me, I think wealth is as much about knowledge and capability as it is about money in a bank account. Interesting. Okay, so wealth, capability, responsibility, opportunity. We've got a lot of lot to play with there. Now, let us get stuck in because I know you two know each other very well. You've worked together a lot. So I'm hoping that we're going to get lots of fascinating insight and anecdotes and tales about how you've helped uh, this next gen uh, group to deal with their wealth and how to advise them. Um, I think just to sort of really kick us off, Stuart, from a wealth context, how do you define next gen? Yeah, it's it's a really good question, actually. And it's not a, always a straightforward answer. The way that we tend to look at next gen at Coots is really around the, the next generation of wealth inheritors, so children of our existing clients. Um, there's also next generation wealth creators. So you might be looking at the new entrepreneurs, but from, from the work that I do and the work that, that Jeff and I do together, we tend to focus on those that are inheriting wealth uh, down through the generations. Because, yes, that's definitely two very different groups, isn't it? Because, of course, one have one are entrepreneurs and one may not know what to do with their money at all, but they've got an awful lot of it sitting in a bank account. Absolutely. And I think what what we shouldn't do, though, is, is necessarily tar them with the same brush. There are so many entrepreneurs in the next generation of inheritors. There's, uh, and, and Jeff and I have talked about this at length, that I think the next generation of inheritors sometimes do get a a bad rep that they are just lazy and, you know, they're never going to make something and they're just reliant on their parents. But actually, we see so many entrepreneurs, new business owners, charity endeavours. So some really fascinating stuff coming through from the next generation. Yes, that old term that used to be banded around a lot of trustafarian was very judgmental, wasn't it? Absolutely. Now, Jeff, let's turn to you. Um, I've already described to the listeners that uh, you deliver training to next geners. Uh, what do you actually do? What does that entail? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that came out a little wrong, didn't it, Jeff? <laughs> no, 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 trust me, trust me. My, my, my children have been asking me that for about 34 years now. What exactly do you do? Um, um, I, I work with with people on two areas really. One is on uh, the coaching and the training in terms of developing skills, but the other is on counselling, almost bordering on therapy. And I, and I heard it described recently as the counselling and therapy is to help somebody get from minus seven back to zero, so undoing and repairing damage. And then the coaching and the training is helping them get from zero to plus seven in terms of fulfilling 
fulfilling their potential, as it were. That's very interesting indeed. I, I, I think we're going to be looking at both the sort of minus seven to zero and the zero to plus seven sections sort of slightly, you know, separately. But I mean, well, let's talk about the positives first of all. What, what are you actually coaching them to do? Yeah, no, it's a, again, good question. Uh, probably best, it, it really depends on the, the family, it depends on their circumstances. But one example I can give you, um, I was working with a wealthy family recently and dad unfortunately had a heart attack. Um, fortunately, it was not fatal, but the doctor had said to him, you can no longer run the family business. Uh, and the unfortunate thing was he was the main business developer. He went and found the clients, built the relationships on the family basis. They always wanted a family member. So mum stood up and she said, well, I'll take over the role of managing director, running the business on an operational basis. But in terms of business development, selling, finding new clients, finding new opportunities, their eldest son had to do it. And he, he had no sales experience at all. So in that case, my project was I had six months with him and my job was to get him to be able to sell, market and promote the company and build relationships with clients. Uh, fortunately, he was a great student and he's done extremely well. And how does working in those circumstances differ from straightforward sales training within a corporate environment? Because obviously, you know, lots of people have to be taught how to sell, but it's got a very different uh, set of parameters, hasn't it, when you're you're talking about family business? It, it, well, I think the biggest difference is the, the business is there. So I guess it would be like training any entrepreneur, but it's their own business. I've done sales training for corporates for, again, 34 years. Uh, and uh, they're, they're employees inside the organization. And if, if it doesn't quite work or they don't quite meet their targets, then they can go go and find another job, go to another company. In, in the case of the next geners, if it doesn't work, there's the responsibility and the duty of the entire family enterprise here. And there may be many other members of the family who are depending on them to make this a success. And how close do you get to these families? Oh, very close. I mean, it's 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 great fun. I don't come from this background. You know, I went to a comprehensive school in the north of England. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much an outsider in this uh, this field. And I find it fascinating and hysterically funny many times. Um, the, the young man that I was just talking about, uh, one of the biggest problems was he wouldn't get up in the morning. Uh, he was perpetually late. Uh, and, and this is only in a family business would you ever find this. His mother, we had a family conference, and his mother said, I've got the perfect solution. He's always half an hour late to work. Therefore, my solution is let's push everybody's starting time back half an hour, and that way he won't be late. <laughs> Mothers, eh? Tell you. <laughs> but this is, it's, it's, it's very sort of... Um... It's very basic hand-holding that you're doing then in quite a lot of respects, isn't it? Oh, in some cases, because despite the fact that their parents are, are these extraordinary people who've managed to do amazing things in terms of generating this wealth, that hasn't always transferred but down to the young. It does in some cases, and Stuart will tell you about those. Um, but in some cases, they, they have little or no background in business 
at all. They've almost been kept at a distance from it. And then suddenly somebody's saying, oh, your turn, now step up to the plate. They go, well, I don't know what to do. I was with two young men who uh, asked me to help them in terms of what they were supposed to do during a board meeting. They, they were on, they'd suddenly been promoted to the family board and they had no idea whether they were allowed to ask any questions. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, you're, I think, opening the, the, the range of possibilities here for us, you know, as listeners, realising that, of course, you, you know, you might have somebody saying, OK, you actually need to get hands-on with the family business. Or it might be you've suddenly got to look after a huge investment portfolio. Or you might just literally have an enormous amount of money suddenly landing in your account, which you weren't expecting yet. And where do you even begin to start? And I guess, Stuart, that's where you come in, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do a lot of work with family businesses as well, as Jeff mentioned. But it's actually, there's quite a lot of similarities in terms of the family business model, in terms of passing down one big asset, essentially. And, and there's extra pressures because you might actually have to take on a role in the business. But when you're thinking about it in a wealth context, it's very similar in the respect of you will have as a next genner a responsibility either now or in the future to look after some of this wealth. And actually, there's a very similar process which really strong families will go through to develop a collective view of their investments or their family business. Because if it becomes only delivered from the parents' generation and it's we only do it this way, the next generation will feel disenfranchised, they won't want to get involved. And that is where we see a lot of wealth erosion over the years, because people aren't able, I mean, we're in England, after all, it's a taboo subject, no one likes talking about money. But actually, the more that you don't talk about it, the more possibility there are for assumptions to be made, things to go wrong. And, and a lot of some of the things that I deal with are around particularly between siblings and expectations. So everyone thinks about when inheriting wealth or passing money on. Let's take the example of two children. Everyone is assuming that there's going to be a 50-50 split. And that is, I'm not saying that's wrong in any way, shape or form. Um, but, and that's a big but, it has to be within context. So there has to be, there's so many variables in families, in modern families these days. Uh, and some of the, just the, the high level ones, do you, treat, do you treat stepchildren the same as you would your, your blood children? Or, you know, if one of your children is a investment banker earning £500,000 a year, as an example, and the other sibling isn't earning that much on inheritance, should they have the same amount of money? question. I mean, there's the thing with this, there's no right or wrong answer. But the only way I think you can have a positive result from that is talking about it, really. So a lot of the work that Jeff does that I do when we work together on cases is about opening up that conversation. And it's, it's not always an easy one to have. In your experience over the last few years, has it become easier? Are you seeing that people are beginning to take that view? As you already alluded, Stuart, to the, you know, that, that rather English tendency of, you know, let's not discuss politics, religion or money. I mean, it's, you know, you're obviously telling people they've got to. Are they starting to do so more, do you think? <laughs> oh, that's a really tricky one. Um, Jeff is laughing at this point. I, I, I'm guessing he thinks no. <laughs> I would have to say I probably agree with, with Jeff's laughter in that respect. Um, 
it is obviously completely de- dependent on family circumstances. I think there are unfortunately not enough people talking about it when there isn't any challenges. So when when we get to tend to get brought in is when th- when something's going wrong, when there's been an argument or something's happened. I mean, Jeff mentioned about having um, one of his clients having the heart attack. It's usually a trying to get back to normal rather than the really positive outcomes we see for families. Actually, no, we're going to tackle this head on. Everything is great at the moment in the family. There's no arguments. There's no nothing. And we can really just have a positive conversation. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. And, and I know I've done some work with international families, but I know Jeff done a lot more for it. So, and it does differ dependent on where sort of what your heritage is and your culture is. Absolutely. No, it'd be fascinating to, to delve into the international aspect a little more in in a moment, but just to just to talk about sort of the experience you've had of, of, of people here in the UK, Jeff and Stuart. Um I feel like this is such a huge topic because obviously every family is different, every wealth creator is different. But um how in your experience, Jeff, have have you know, have you found kids actually responded to having extremely successful wealthy parents? Because it can be a burden as well as a blessing, can't it? And and yet it still brings out many of the same issues. So, Katie, when you talked about the reluctance, the British reluctance, uh, I do a lot of work in Asia. And I spend a lot of time in in Singapore, especially. And in Asian cultures, it's, it's very difficult to discuss death, to even say death. Is, is impolite and uh, it, it's bad luck. Um, so when you're trying to talk about, but but mum or dad, what's going to happen when uh, you're no longer here? <laughs> and it's, oh, we, we don't need to talk about that. We don't need to talk about that. And one of the most common strategies of, of all of the possible uh, alternatives in terms of transferring wealth, which might be selling your business, uh, bringing in an external person, uh, getting it to another family member, the most popular of all the strategies is to do nothing. Uh, and and the, I think the reason is psychological as much as anything. As I've mentioned, these first generation, the, the, the founders, the, the, the wealth creators, as it were, um, they are extraordinary people. But it's, it's a massive wrench to at some stage recognise you've got to that stage where time is overtaking you and you are going to have to relinquish that power, relinquish that position, relinquish that wealth to others. And it can be a major psychological problem. And I'm not sure that's that's unique to the UK. I think that's that's across the world. It's interesting, isn't it? I'm sure there'll be people listening to this who'll say, well, you know, I'm going to play my tiny violin now. This is what the ultimate first world problem, isn't it? You know, people having a problem of having too much money. But that is the business we're in. These kids, young people, next geners, they exist and they have to handle things responsibly, don't they? So in, that, in, in those circumstances... Have there been any sort of rules and uh, common themes, do you think, that you've discovered, Jeff, or you've seen, Stuart, where you thought that that family's got it right? Oh, hugely, hugely. Uh, I mean, we've had some amazing experiences. Stuart uh, and I have worked on programmes across the years where we've had groups of young, wealthy people in all together. And it's fascinating to see how some of them didn't even realise that their their families were that wealthy. And in one particular case I can think of, uh, we had uh, a young person who came in almost resenting her father. And she resented her father because the wealth had been generated 
sort of when she got to about 11 or 12, I think. And it meant a move of house, it meant a move to a new school. And there was a, a massive resentment to that. Um, and fortunately, thanks to some of the work we were doing and her exposure to some of, some other uh, young wealthy people, uh, she changed her opinion. And when she went back, uh, she said to her dad, she said, I want to thank you. I've, I've, I've not particularly responded well to this, but I want to thank you for all the work that you've uh, you've done for us, uh, and that was just, I think, predominantly by being exposed to other young wealthy people and seeing that they were okay. So, Stuart, how would you uh, advise a family? Perhaps when we, I mean, we don't need to necessarily be talking about royal levels of wealth, <laughs> but any substantial amount of wealth that are, uh, the next geners are suddenly going to have to deal with. Uh, what are the family setups where you've seen it work very well? I think there has to be a, a desire from the next gen to, to get involved. And that might come over time. That's not going to be necessarily natural. But I think one of the things that, that we feel really strongly about at Coots and one of the things that I work on a lot is preparing that next generation from, a, and, and Jeff mentioned it at the beginning, from a skills and knowledge perspective. Um, and one of the big things that, that I find and... Um, it, it makes me slightly unhappy is the respect that there's no real financial education on the national curriculum. The, the only thing that I ever see is you might put a pound sign next to a maths equation. <laughs> and, and that's about as far as you get in terms of learning about finance. So when um, you start, the next gen start going to university or getting into jobs and, and, and starting their own careers and lives, as it were, and, and ceasing to be dependent on their parents. They haven't got a clue where to start when it comes to money. They might have a bank account, might have a credit card. But other than that, they don't really know much at all. And that's that's not their fault. So a lot of what we do is really trying to help um, the next gen to understand what the different options they have available to them. What's, you know, what's good about having a credit card or having debt? What's bad about it? How can you think about investments? But also other areas, particularly with some of our clients, you know, charitable giving. How is that? How can that be a really positive impact for you as an individual, but also in family circumstances? So a lot of what we do is really rooted in that educational knowledge, knowledge gap really, that a lot of the next gen have. Because, I mean, from me growing up, I just learned it by doing. And that's not necessarily comes naturally to everyone. Um, so it is. And it's very different if you are in a quite a straightforward situation of I have a job, I get paid, and with that money I pay the rent or a mortgage and the food bills, or... I've actually got a private income of 25 grand a month coming in. What on earth do I do with this? Because frankly, I could spend it all on a lot of Haribo. <laughs> Other sweets are available. Uh, you know, or what, what you know, it, it's, it's, it, they, we are talking quite a different level of education that's necessary here, aren't we? Uh, again, I mean, Stuart's got uh, some experiences of specific family strategies, but we see probably more experiences of people getting it wrong than right, historically. I mean, there are whole books written about the Ford family, the Adidas family, the Gucci family, the IBM family, about how they didn't get it right. And I think what's a really interesting point around that, and I completely agree with Jeff there, I think sometimes what's really interesting is parents might give some wealth down to the next generation for, for, for them to manage. And I'm putting that in inverted commas in the respect of it's sort of a look but don't touch 
type of scenario. So there's this sort of, we're giving you some money, but actually we're still controlling it. And actually from a, and Jeff mentioned in terms of the coaching side and, and talking about perhaps confidence with the next generation, that's really, can be really impactful on someone's confidence. It's sort of, well, it's there, but I'm not allowed to do anything with it. And actually from a, a knowledge and education, that will just put people off and they won't want to engage with it at all. So you get a really different dynamics across families as well. I was going to say, so I, th- I think, again, we, what we often see is the whole spectrum ranging from those who know almost nothing about finance at all to those that have got degrees, postgraduate degrees, they've gone through accountancy courses, they've had their own investment portfolio since they were quite young, they may have started their own business, even though they are second or third generation, but started their own business at a very young age. So we do see you have to cope with a whole spectrum uh, of that when it comes to next gen. It's not just one group of people who have no knowledge. Some have none, some have a vast amount. Are you noticing a change in attitudes between the generations uh, as as we move more into a perhaps a, a social and environmentally aware phase? Yeah, yeah. Again, it's, it's very tempting. You, you mentioned Trustafarian earlier. It's very tempting for sometimes people to think about this generation as, as selfish and titled. I, I get that all the time when, when I'm talking to friends and they ask me what I'm doing and they go, oh, they must be awful, these kids. They must be arrogant. They must be stuck up. They must be rude. And, and I have to defend them and say, no, my experience is, by and large, they are polite, courteous, uh, they care, um, and, and more and more, as, as, as the work I've gone on over the last 15 years, I've seen more and more of them wanting to give back, wanting to contribute, wanting to do social enterprises, wanting to get involved in philanthropy and charities. So, it, you know, you do have to fight. It's not everybody, of course, but you do have to fight sometimes those stereotypes. And Stuart, are you seeing the next geners influencing the wealth creators in that respect? I'd say so to a degree. Um, I think particularly on sort of the philanthropy and and the social enterprise, social investment side, that their views are starting to be heard more. And and partly it is an age thing. As you become older and older, I mean, I think every family is probably similar in that dynamic. You have to go from being the child to being a member of the family in your own right with your own voice. Some families are better than others at doing that. Um, But particularly on the sort of the societal side and actually caring about the community where they live, work and spend money, absolutely. And I think social media, as an example, has massively ramped that up. The world is obviously so much more connected and people feel like they have more of a voice online perhaps than they do in other areas. You mentioned earlier... um... Jeff, about the different attitudes in different parts of the world and the different attitudes to to wealth and and death in Asia. Um, How do you advise the families in... in, I know you do a lot of work in Singapore. How how are you finding your actual approaches to coaching these families' changes? You have to look at it with every single family. But in Singapore, it is particularly difficult because there's, there's one element there that I've encountered. And whenever you talk about the differences between a culture, you're clearly grossly generalizing. So I don't mean to be rude to anybody. I'll keep it factual. But um, I did an exercise which invited young people uh, to do sort of scrapbooking, as it were, and cut out images of what wealth meant to them 
from from articles in the, the magazines. And most of the time in Europe or in the US, I find it's health, it's family, it's community. And when I did it in Singapore, it was Chanel, Gucci, Armani. And there, there was a materialism. And my, my, I hope my Singaporean friends will forgive me for this. But it, it, it is very much in that culture that wealth is status. Um, and I arrive at Singapore Airport and see a huge signs for the Singapore Shopping Festival. What's a shopping festival? And, and underneath there is a, a strap line that said, when shopping is everything. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, these are, you, have to, you have to be aware of these. They are still lovely people and they still have the same family dynamics and family issues and we still get into it. But there are small differences that we have to be aware of sometimes. But again, is it, you're still, I guess, dealing with trying to advise the family to not erode their uh, their wealth so that they can still continue to shop <laughs> as much as they want. Well, well, that that's one that, again, we, we do a lot of work on, the dissipation of wealth. If you have a wealthy mum and dad who each have four children, who each in turn have four children, and then you have second or third marriages and adopted children, etc., it, it only takes three generations for a small family to become a huge family, and that, and it's very difficult to trans, transfer that wealth. The, in our business, it's long been known that transferring wealth rarely lasts more than three generations, from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And almost every culture has an expression like that. And it's not new. I came across an old English proverb recently that said... There's nobbit three generations between a clog and a clog. <laughs> Spoken like a proper northerner. What can I say? <laughs> Where there's muck, there's brass. <laughs> Stuart, how, uh, I mean, you must have had situations where you've looked at the personalities in a family and looked at the dynamics and you've thought, you know what, you shouldn't be passing the business down to, you know, child number one. Child number three is really smart. I mean, how do you handle that? And that's the thing, but it's also a lot about perception. And I think one of the one of the things that I don't do is I will not make a I won't use my own judgment on a family. I think that's the most important thing that you can recognize. As a family business advisor or a wealth advisor, my role is not to be the mouthpiece of mum and dad to the next generation. And that's the sort of the fundamental cornerstone of all of the work that we do. So actually, it's really about trying to align what that role is with the skills and attributes of family members and having, and again, going back to Jeff's point earlier, having a, a group meeting or a series of family meetings where you discuss not only what the role is, but also what do the next gen want to do? It's, you've got, you can't just assume, and this is where family businesses do go wrong, is perhaps the, the more primogenitor model of firstborn son will inherit the world. And actually, they might not have the skills or attributes to do it, but also more importantly, they might not have the interest. And, and it's really important to ascertain whether the next gen are interested in getting involved in the business or getting involved in managing the wealth. There might be other family members that are interested, and they can go to Jeff 
and get coached to do it if, 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 if there are skills or knowledge gaps that and those kind of things. But I think sort of avoid the next gen at your peril is, is kind of my advice to, to families that you've got to have that open dialogue to find out what they really want to do with their lives. And it might not be what you think. The psychology of it all is so fascinating because, you know, you put yourself then in the, the parents' shoes and all they've ever wanted to do is do their best for their kids, right? That's what every parent wants to do. I mean, we are getting into the realms of so many different Hollywood film scripts at this point. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, I don't quite know where to start. But, <laughs> succession, anyone? Uh, but, no, but, but Jeff, Jeff, I mean, do you ever find yourself having to literally take the parents into hand and say, look, you know, this has got to the point now where you're about to make everything go sour if you don't help child one or child two make their minds up about whether or not they're going to start taking responsibility. You know, they're now in their 30s. It's time. It's, it's one of the trickiest elements of our jobs is who is our client? Because the person who often calls me in, uh, works with Stuart, is, is often the parent who will say, you know, can you work with my children? But once we're working with the children, they're now our clients. And uh, I had a father who, uh, quite a, a dominant character, who said, uh, my daughter has no confidence at all. I want you to work with her and I want you to give her confidence. Uh, and in my first meeting with, uh, with the young lady, it, she was extremely nervous, uh, touching her face, smoking a lot, twitching. Uh, and she was, she, was, she was a wreck. And she told me in her first meeting of a New Year's Eve party where they'd had a famous pianist playing, lots of guests there. She was there. And she was just standing by the famous pianist. And as she stood there, her father walked past the pianist and said, oh, she can sing. You should get her to sing. And she said, I didn't want to sing in front of her. There were, there were other actors and actresses and singers there. She said, I didn't want to sing. And then the father turned to all the assembled guests and said, who'd like to hear my daughter sing? Well, of course, out of politeness, they all applauded. And uh, she said, they said, go on, sing, sing. And the pianist, who was very kind, said, well, what can you sing? And she said, uh... And the father said, oh, she sings Tragedy from the Bee Gees. Quite ironically, I think, Tragedy. And she said, he started to play Tragedy, and she said, the only word I could remember was Tragedy. She said, so I'm standing in front of all of these people going, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, it's Tragedy. She said, and after a while, I could hear somebody at the, the back of the room shouting, boo, you're rubbish, get off. It was her father. I mean, uh, that's everybody's nightmare. Absolutely. Now, I mean, it doesn't have to go hand in hand with enormous wealth, but one can imagine that the ego can sometimes be associated with that level of success does lead to some pretty sticky, um, sticky dynamics. It's sort of the equivalent of, of, of the, the parent who wants to teach their child to swim by chucking them in the pool and saying, you're either going to sink or swim here. Um, and, and from their perspective is, I started with nothing. I crawled up out of the dust. You should be able to as well. If I put you under enough pressure, you will you'll flourish. But not everybody does. So, Jeff, how did you handle that situation? Well, at that stage, I have to go and have a conversation with Dad and and share some of those examples and some of those stories. And there, it's almost like holding up a mirror. It's not about judging them, but it's holding up the mirror. And in most cases, because they've called you in, the parents, it's not always Dad, but the parents will often say, ah, I didn't realise. 
only because their focus has been on other things. I'm not trying to be cruel to the parents. Their focus has been on building a business. And that takes an awful lot of energy, mental and physical energy, and time. And they've left, in some cases, dealing with their children to either their other partner, or they've left it to nannies, or they've left it to boarding schools, or uh, advisors. And uh, So you, you, you talk to the father, and it's, oh, I didn't realise... And if, from that point onwards, I actually ended up doing some coaching with both of them. And and did the daughter end up being confident enough to handle some of the the family business, the, the wealth? Well, I, I'd love to be able to say yes. She got she developed confidence, but her confidence was to leave the family business and to go and make her own future. Which actually, her dad was very happy. Gosh, that's a lesson for everybody listening, isn't it? My goodness me. I mean, Stuart, is that familiar to you as well? Have you do you see that kind of dynamic occurring a lot between the generations? Absolutely. I think again, going back to there's I think there's expectation and perception between the generations. And particularly on the expectation side. From parents, they might have one set of expectations of their children, whether that's related to family business or not, or it related to work ethic or related to confidence, as as Jeff has just been talking about. Whereas actually the next gen might have a completely different path that they might want to take and they've got a completely different philosophy on, on where they'd like to go and what they'd like to do. So it is about... it's partly managing that, those expectations. Sometimes, well, a lot of the time, families can do that themselves. They might not need Jeff or I to come in and talk. But for those families where it does become such a big issue that actually they can't get through it by just having a conversation amongst their family, that's where we get more involved because they need that independent party to really help them. It's interesting, we, we've mostly been talking about uh, the next genus who who didn't ask for the money. <laughs> they didn't create it. It's is landed on them and, and, and the problems and the, and the benefits that they've they've uh, had to cope with subsequently. But we did at the beginning of this discussion talk about next geners in the sense of the new young wealth creators. And uh, and Stuart and Jeff, both of you, I'd be interested to know what your your views of them are and, and, and whether or not you're seeing any different behaviours from, I mean, how are we defining young at this point? Under 40? Mm. Well, I mean, it's a really tricky one, this, because we often talk about next geners as young, but in Asia, the average age of wealth transfer is 55. So, you know, they're not always young. And then when you look at the first generation, we often typify them as old. But some of these creators, Mark Zuckerberg uh, is, what, 39? Um, I think he's 39. Uh, Jeff Bezos is only 56. Um, You know, these people are not 70 and 80-year-olds, and yet they control billions of, of global welfare. So, you know, this idea of young... I think has, has, has differed. Sometimes the first generation are the young ones and the second generation are the older ones. In terms of, of, of the way they are handling their wealth, Stuart, are you seeing the difference, though, in terms of, of, of these, these new younger, let's say, <laughs> <laughs> wealth generators? Yeah, and, and it does, it can depend on how they've how they've made their wealth and i think you know there's there's sort of the the sports community actually who tend to do they do tend to have a younger um they too tend to be younger and made their wealth at a very young age um and particularly for those for those individuals who 
their whole their their job is nothing to do with finance or nothing to do with business. Actually, that knowledge and and, and education that they need is probably perhaps even more so, um, rather than an entrepreneur that knows how a balance sheet works and things like that. I think, but again, I'd probably go back to the the point we we're making earlier about that social responsibility. Um, and a lot of the new new gen, perhaps rather than next gen uh, entrepreneurs, will have a lot more of a social aspect to their business. It tends not to be the older model would be perhaps build a business, sell it, and then give back philanthropically or you know give back to charity. Actually, a lot of the the next generation, new generation entrepreneurs are building social conscience into their business as part of their their day-to-day. So whether that be the communities that they work in, supporting supporting their staff, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's where you might see a slight shift. So it's not not an inherited uh, philosophy. It's one that they're building themselves. Have you noticed much change over the last four to five months with the lockdown, either of you, in terms of behaviours between generations, in terms of the way people are approaching managing their wealth? Yeah, again, I think this was happening pre-COVID anyway, but COVID sort of exaggerated it and and sped it up. We've been talking in the industry about uh, fintech, financial technology. We've been talking about robo-advisors, which sounds very science fiction, but actually is how to be able to, instead of sitting with somebody in a room uh, and dictating what that you're looking for, going online and being able to fill in questionnaires and go through systems and, and the advice is coming automatically for you. Um, now, that was happening anyway. And of course, now, thanks to COVID and not being able to travel, not being able to move, there's been uh, much more of that digitization of, of the world. If anybody had told me some time ago, I'd be doing all of my coaching on what WhatsApp, uh, not Zoom. Uh, when I'm working with the next gen, it's very often I'm not doing it on a PC. I'm doing it on a phone because the, the, the young people that I'm working with are much more comfortable using something like WhatsApp other platforms are available, but they're much more comfortable using that than they are, let's say, uh, something like uh, WebEx or Zoom, etc. But we do know that there's there's a a sort of counterintuitive element to this. Whilst we often think of millennials and the generation that comes after them, Generation Z, as they're, they're, they're referred to, whilst we often think about them as digital natives, Counterintuitively, when it comes to important issues, especially when it comes to development, when it comes to careers, and when it comes to their financial futures, they still value face-to-face contact. Interesting. I mean, Stuart, are you noticing that you've had to change your methods over the last six months? Absolutely. I mean, we... Coots has always been a very sort of face-to-face business, and a lot of the work that we do is whether it's events, whether it's face-to-face meetings with families. Um, and obviously, that has gone completely out the window in, in the last six months or so. And I think we've always been pretty good about embracing technology. But to Jeff's point, it's, all, it's also about, particularly with the next-gen audience in mind, what do, what do they want to use? We are... We are a big corporation who uses Zoom technology a lot. Actually, it's going back to how would they like to interact with us? And a lot of people 
are in the next generation population, part of big corporates and using Zoom, but it's about being agile to what works. So is it one-on-one video calls? Is it a group video call? Um, but absolutely, obviously, I think a lot of people, as Jeff mentioned, would like to get back to, to seeing face-to-face. And I think that's particularly important for the networking side of, of what we've talked about and what Jeff talked about earlier, because you can't really network in the virtual world in the same way that you would do in a room. That's that's my opinion anyway. I, I'd love to see a technology which allows you to, to mingle with other people and have a chat, but I just don't see that there at the moment. I think that's been one of the biggest uh, things that we, we did with the, some of our, our placement programs. Um, I, I've been involved for, for many years with various organisations where each summer they bring together groups of clients. And one of the biggest benefits of, of that has, to be, has been to have discussions with people in similar circumstances to themselves, where maybe their friends back home or their colleagues back home don't really understand them. And suddenly they're with these groups of other wealthy next generation. They go, oh, oh, you have that problem too. Oh, you can't have that conversation either. And uh, and we found that even with just doing a one-week program, as we have done, that, year, that lifelong friendships have been formed in a way that possibly wouldn't be in other groups. Um, I remember one of our, our, our groups, uh, only uh, a couple of weeks ago, I saw that they were all at a family wedding together and they met one week nearly 10 years ago. Broadly speaking, as we're winding uh, down towards uh, having to end this conversation, um, how do you foresee the challenges for NextGen as changing over the next few years? Jeff, starting with you. Whilst the technology and, and COVID and the pressures of all of that are clearly new, the challenges facing family dynamics aren't. Uh, I mean, I, I, I go back to people laugh when I when I say, you know, Shakespeare talked about this in King Lear. And if you look at King Lear, it's about an elderly king who just got tired of the responsibility of running his kingdom. He decided to give that away to his two daughters and then realised he didn't really like being irrelevant anymore, wanted to keep the control and the authority and the chaos that ensued. I, I'm not sure I've used that analogy too often with a new client, Jeff. It didn't end that well, did it? For the Lears. <laughs> it didn't end, end well for any of them, unless you look at the Victorian alternative ending, in which case it was a happy ending. <laughs> and Stuart, as, as, as Jeff was saying, are these problems eternal or and and not just the problems, but the benefits. Are they the same regardless of the world and generational progress? I think largely, yes. I, I, I can't see in, in any sort of new sort of time soon that there will be a big shift um, in terms of some of the challenges and opportunities that the next gen are facing. I think it's really about how, it's more about how they interact with perhaps the advisory community, as we've talked about from a technological perspective. But also, I think one of the biggest things that I've noticed over the years is just the absolute colossal amount of information that's out there now because we are such a connected world. The choice is awesome in terms of not just wealthy next gen, but next gen generally. And and actually being able to navigate some of that is can be really challenging. And that's 
probably where Jeff and I come in as well, is to, to help the next gen to navigate some of the, the noise that's out there as well. I'm afraid we have come to the end of our time, but Stuart May and Jeff Marsh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. I hope everybody listening, whether you're a next genner, wealthy or otherwise, or a current Jenna, <laughs> that you found it as interesting as I have. Thank you both so much. Uh, Jeff Marsh, Managing Director of the consultancy firm Dan Sam Limited, and Stuart May, Associate Director at Coos. Thank you both. The Coots.com website has a host of information on banking, financial planning and investments. And you can also email investmentqueries at coots.com if you'd like more information on today's topics. And sadly, that brings this series of Expect Better with me, Katie Derham, to a close. We would love it if you could rate and review this episode. And if you've missed any of the other five episodes, they really are worth checking out. So do go and find them. Now, with the help of my guests from the worlds of entertainment and business and charity, we cover everything from gender, smart investing, talking money with kids, top tips for being a successful entrepreneur, and how best to use your money to help good causes. So lots to discover and listen to. Until next time. <laughs>